Please remain standing as you're able for the reading of God's word. The reading for today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 58. The text will be on the screen as I read. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor is not in the Lord is not in vain. This is God's word. Please be seated. Well, good morning, church. If I've never met you before, I'm Brian, one of the pastors here. Uh, parents with kids through second grade, you may dismiss your kids for children's church and a reminder to pick them up right before or right after uh, you take communion. Many of you know this, if you've been uh, here for the last several weeks, that we were preaching through the book of 1 Corinthians, and one of the things that I did uh, for the season of Easter, which we're still in Easter, is to change around the chapters a little bit so that we could preach on 1 Corinthians 15, which deals with the resurrection, and we've been doing that the last couple Sundays. Today is the last Sunday, the third Sunday that we'll spend in 1 Corinthians, and then we go back to the section that we skipped over, which is 1 Corinthians 11 through 14, before we wrap up with 16. And the way the letter's structured and laid out, it's a, it's a fitting way uh, to, I think, deal with it, because he takes on different topics that he's addressing from letters and things that he's hearing from the church in Corinthians, so I think it was a fine way of doing it. However, I do have one massive mistake that I made in uh, trying to figure out the schedule that I completely overlooked. Next week's text is on head coverings. Do you know what's going on next week? What's going on next week? Next Sunday. Some of you might need this reminder. It's Mother's Day. That just wasn't on my radar. I was thinking church calendar, right? Resurrection, Eastertide, Ascension Sunday, Pentecost, right around the corner. I wasn't thinking about the normal calendar. So next Sunday is Mother's Day. We're going to 1 Corinthians 11. Now, if you don't know the text about head coverings, what the controversy is, just let me just sprinkle a couple of verses on here just to, just to kind of pique your interest in what I'm in for. Here's verse 3 from 1 Corinthians 11. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and, that the, and the head of the woman is man. Next week, Mother's Day, we have to deal with that verse. <laughs> That's not enough. A man ought to not cover his head since he is the image and the glory of God, but a woman is the glory of man. That's verse 7 on Mother's Day. All right, so please pray with me. Just, just 
really tone-deaf thing. I don't know what I was thinking. Uh, we'll, see. we'll see what happens, all right? I need the, the power that raised Jesus from the dead to be with me next Sunday uh, for Mother's Day. So that's the Mother's Day text. Today we're, we're wrapping up 1 Corinthians 15. We better pray. Clear, clearly I need it, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this gathering of folks. Thank you for the saints that you have brought here. Thank you for those that you brought here that are struggling with their faith, with doubts, or maybe they're not uh, at the point that they have faith. And we are glad that they're here too, exploring, questioning, wondering about the ways of your son, Jesus Christ. So now we know what you do through your word. You speak the universe into existence and sustain all life by the word of your power. And it is that very word that raised Jesus Christ from the dead and continues to be active and transformative because of the power of your spirit. That's what we're doing right now, Lord. We are leaning on that word and anticipate, Lord, that it will have a powerful impact on us yet again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Sometimes it's hard to figure out what to hold on to if you're dealing with a health crisis, but there's a belief that I've heard multiple saints confess over the years that I think is one of the most solid uh, principles, truths that you can hold on to if you are facing a health crisis. I re recall several years ago, a uh, close family member of mine was starting to lose his eyesight from a detached retina, and that's a frustrating diagnosis because even with the potential for some procedures that could bring your sight back, there's always risk and the thought crosses your mind and many questions start to cross your mind. What if the laser surgery doesn't work? What if I lose my sight for the rest of my life? What else is going to break down in my body as I get older if this is what's happening to me? I remember having this conversation with this family member and, and we're asking these questions and other things that just start to spin around in your mind as you're facing a health crisis, whether the health crisis is known or something you're trying to diagnose and it's, you're going months and months and months with trying to figure out what is going on, you're just spinning with these questions. And I remember talking to him about his health, talking to him about these questions, the things that are spinning around in his head. And one of his responses uh, to my question, oh, how are you doing with all this? And he responded with this truth. Well, it's nothing that a good resurrection won't fix. And it wasn't just him that I've heard utter this phrase. I remember seminary professors sharing uh, stories about saints in the hospital battling for their life that have confessed that uh, truth as they are dying. It's nothing that a good resurrection won't fix. And little did I know, uh, and many of you know my own health story, that I would need to lay hold of that truth in my own, in my own story. I, I, I was reminded of this actually recently. I went to like a, a regular kind of routine checkup, nothing big, uh, and I was filling out the health questionnaire that you have to do if you're seeing a new doctor. And it's one of those things that it reminded me of my old experience. So it would be like, have you ever had a broken bone? No. Do you have any allergies? No. Uh, have you ever had a cavity? No. You know, just this flawless health record that I have. And then there's the junk drawer thing at the end. Have you ever had anything else in your health history? And I said, yes, stage four non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Just put that in right at the end. Like, it's just this flawless thing, but then this reminder of death, this reminder of this battle. Uh, and praise the Lord that I'm in remission right now, but this is the thing that, that even making this sermon, I thought about this confession, this truth that saints uh, throughout the ages and in the present day have confessed. There is nothing 
that death can throw at me that a good resurrection won't fix. There's so much uncertainty with physical health sometimes. How will I overcome this? Do we have the medical advancements to deal with this issue? Will I ever be the same, or is this the new reality in my life? And it's in times of uncertainty, not with just health, but anything else that brings uncertainty, when the questions aren't clear and the anxiety is high, you need something to hold on to. That's what you need in those times. And in the ultimate sense, there's no better motto than there is nothing that a good resurrection won't fix. Now to some that might sound like some type of hyper-spirituality that has no grounding in the tangible realities of the natural world. And if that's kind of what you're thinking, like I don't understand the big deal why that would be a sense of comfort in this life. Well, you might have the same skepticism that the Church of Corinth was dealing with. Some misconceptions perhaps of what the doctrine of a bodily resurrection means. And in today's text, Paul once again addresses this skepticism concerning a bodily resurrection. And he's already laid the framework of, of for Christ's bodily resurrection, how it's the heart of the Christian faith, and how without it there would be no Christian faith. And now he gets into more details of what it may look like for God's people to be raised bodily from the dead, because the resurrection will lead to a glorious transformation and a new humanity. Let's try to understand what they were dealing with. What, what, why were the, the people of Corinth so skeptical about this idea? Look at verses 35 through 36. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. So there's the question from the skeptics. How are the dead raised? What kind of body Will it be? Uh, what they're asking here is not so much like, how is it possible? I mean, Paul's already answered that. Well, with God, all things are possible. I mean, he can raise the dead if he wants to raise. The question is, is a little bit different than that. They're thinking like, what's, what's that all going to look like? Like a bodily resurrection? Like exactly what does that entail? Like a corpse coming back to life? Are we talking like zombie apocalypse happening? Is that what you believe in, Paul? That sounds so weird to hope and want that to happen, these broken down bodies to come back to life. For the, Corinth, for the Corinthians uh, in the church of Corinth, they're okay maybe with the spiritual resurrection or the idea that the resurrection could be a metaphor, but the idea that the resurrection is bodily, that sounds gory, that sounds gross, to them. But Paul responds and says, how foolish. You are fools with small theological brains and a shallow understanding of the ways of God in Christ. You are ignorant, he's saying, that you don't see the glorious hope behind this belief. And then Paul takes on this question with an analogy. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And he unpacks that a little bit in the following verses. Look at 37 through 41. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon and the stars another. The stars differ from star in splendor. 
So he's saying this analogy. When you plant a seed and it grows into a plant, the plant is completely transformed from what it used to be. Yet, there's a continuation. The seed really did produce the plant, even though that the plant is radically different than the seed. And the plant and the difference between the plant and the seed and other things in heaven and earth is something that's determined by God. And he goes on and unpacks the analogy a little bit more. He says, just as the flesh of people is different from animals and animals from birds and birds from fish, yet all these earthly bodies are even different than heavenly bodies like the glorious sun, moon, and stars. Now, why is Paul making these distinctions? What is his point? He says this point in verse 42. He says, so will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Now, it's important to note, because modern readers might miss this, that the distinction between a physical body and a spiritual body isn't something that's tangible, physical, that you can touch, where spiritual is this kind of nebulous thing that's, that's a spirit without a body. Sometimes when we read a text like that, we think that Paul is making a distinction between a physical body that can stub its toe and a spiritual body that can go through walls, right? One's a ghost and one's what we deal with right now. But that's not what Paul is saying. Uh, between, that's the difference between these two. The earthly body is one that is temporal. The spiritual body is a real body, but this is a body that's resurrected because of God's power in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. Both bodies, the spiritual and the earthly, are real and tangible bodies, but they have completely different characteristics. One body is the body that we experience in the natural world, but the hope is in a body transformed by the power of the Spirit for the new heavens and new earth. So right now, our present and natural bodies are perishable. They're mortal. They're dishonorable and weak. They get sick. They decay. They break down. They die. But our future spiritual bodies, which are real and tangible, are imperishable, immortal, glorious, and raised in power. Now, have you ever tried to wrap your mind around what that resurrected body would be like? It's hard to imagine it, right? And, and sometimes I, I'm a pastor, I'm a theologian, so I have thought experiments that, uh, that I go through when I think about this. I think about it a lot with athletics, and as you know, I've been watching the NBA playoffs, and one of the most frustrating things that happens if you watch sports or if you are an athlete, it doesn't matter what sport it is, uh, what's really frustrating is when injuries happen. Injuries to your favorite player, injuries to your favorite team, injuries that, that you might have because you have a dance performance and it's your big performance coming up and you get injured right beforehand. It's frustrating to get injured. One of the things I think about is I think the NBA playoffs are going to happen in heaven. What? Nobody's going to get injured. That's one of the ways I think about it. Resurrected body? Can't sprain an ankle with that thing. And just think, I think I'll be able to dunk a basketball in heaven. That's one of the ways because I'll have a resurrected body. Or here's another way that I thought about it. In a resurrected body, I don't think there are going to be food allergies. So all of you people that have the sad life of not enjoying cheese will one day be raised from the dead, and you will be able to enjoy cheese, right? So I don't know how you think about this, but this is, these are the, the distinctions that Paul makes, but it's one of the things that I think about of, like, what will this resurrected body be like? We know that it's imperishable, immortal, glorious, raised in power, but there'll be, like, a tangible, real expression of that, 
that's hard to explain, that's glorious. And I love the analogy that Paul is using because it shows how radical it's going to be that you aren't going to have words to be able to describe what your resurrected body will be like. He talks about it as trying to draw a distinction between a seed and the plant that comes from a seed. Think about a seed. I found a picture of a seed, and that's a seed that will eventually uh, turn into a flower, and that's a seed. And that's our experience right now. Like, think about that as your earthly body. That's your current estate. That's your current experience. So if that's what you're used to, how do you ever know what that's going to become? How, if this is a seed, how do I even know and have the categories to describe what it's going to be like if the resurrected form of it's going to be like this? And turns into, of course, I picked an Easter lily uh, for, for the, uh, this analogy. How could you even know the seed is going to turn into that glorious thing? That's what the resurrection from the dead is going to be like. It's going to be real. It's going to be a continuation of who you really are right now, but it's going to be glorified in such a way that who would have ever been able to just say that came from the seed that you just saw in the previous picture. And not only will we have a glorious transformation, Paul says, we also are going to be a new humanity. Look at verses 44 through 49. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust and of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we are born the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. So this is what's going on. The first man is Adam, the person in Scripture identified as the first human. But the last Adam, that's Jesus Christ. And he's drawn a distinction between the two. He says, the first Adam became a living being, but the last Adam is a life-giving spirit. Adam may have came first, and then the last Adam, Christ, just like the natural becomes comes before the spiritual. The first Adam was of the dust of the earth, and the second Adam, Jesus Christ, is of heaven. Now, why does all this matter? And why do you want to be united and caught up with the second Adam? He says why in verse 50. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. In other words, those who don't turn to Christ and are united with him will not be transformed, and they will not be resurrected to everlasting life. The old humanity is mortal. We come from the dust, and we return to the dust. But God's kingdom, and here's the problem, is not that. God's kingdom is imperishable. God's kingdom is everlasting. God's kingdom is immortal. Thus, only those who are raised from the dead become imperishable and everlasting are those that inherit the kingdom of God. He makes the same point in Philippians 3, 20 through 21 when he says, our, citizen, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. And when we are raised from the dead, these lowly bodies that are broken down will become everlasting. 
glorious, just like the kingdom of God, and that's why we will be able to be there with him forever and ever and ever. Now, Paul, Paul like a, a good pastor and a good writer, anticipates another question that those in Corinth may have already asked him, may, may uh, be a question that he anticipates that they will ask, and that's what he addresses in verses 51 through 53. He says, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must close itself with imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. So here's the question that he's anticipating. What about the people that are alive? So you're talking about people who have fallen asleep, which is his way of saying that these our brothers and sisters in Christ who are dead, they're just asleep, though, because Christ is going to raise them from the dead. Okay, they're going to get raised. They're going to get a new body. What if Jesus comes back and the last trumpet comes, and that's this, this image of, like, this big declaration for a big event or somebody with status coming. In this sense, it's the last coming, the second coming of Jesus Christ when the trumpet comes and then, and then God and Christ wraps up history. So when that happens, what happens to all of us that are alive? Okay, so the, those that have fallen asleep in Christ, they get a new body. Do we get a new body? Do they get the bodies that have the equivalent of a six-pack, where the rest of us get the dad bods? Like, what happens when Jesus comes back and we haven't passed away? Do we, do we just not get caught up in that? And, and Paul wants it to make it clear that that is not the case. He shares a mystery with him. And a mystery in this context doesn't mean it's something that we cannot know. Rather, a mystery is something that used to be hidden, but now because of Christ, we can know it because he's revealed it. And that's what he is saying. He is saying that we too, even if we're alive when Christ returns, will be caught up in this glorious resurrection along with those saints who have fallen asleep. And he uses this language like it's like putting on clothing we may be imperishable now, but if this happens while we're alive, we will put on the imperishable through the glorious resurrection. In the gospel, our bodies are not rejected, but redeemed in Christ. And not only are they redeemed in Christ, but if you're following what Paul is saying, they are also glorified in Christ. Christianity is ultimately a message about the restoration of humanity. The gospel is the good news that you can be truly human the way that God intended you to be. Yet we're not just restored in our humanity, but it's more than that. We are also glorified. What happens in the, in the end, in the new heavens and new earth, is better than what Adam experienced in the garden. One of the ways I thought about that this week, to try to maybe get a metaphor, paint a picture of this, is uh, one of the things I've, I, I recently did, again, is, is buy Old Home about a couple years ago, and I'm in the process of restoring the plaster uh, because it's one of these old homes that they have probably had wallpaper on these walls uh, for the duration of the 100 years of life that this uh, building has been in existence, so we're peeling back all that wallpaper, scraping off all the glue, and then it reveals, like, all these defects, right? Cracks and crumbling plaster, and just even yesterday, spent hours and hours and hours uh, repairing that plaster. That's an image of restoration, right? That, you, that we're in the process of restoring these walls and restoring this home to what it used to be. Because right now it's crumbling and it's, and it's not the way it ought to be. But the gospel does give us that good news. 
But it's also more than that. We're not only restored in the gospel, we're also, in the end, have a hope of glorification in the gospel because of the hope of the resurrection. That would be like HGTV contacting me with their unlimited resources, so it seems, and saying, we'll take it from here. And they won't only just restore it to what the, the plaster walls would have been like. They would utterly transform my home into a way with their professional expertise and the resources in a way that I can't even imagine it would be transformed into. In a way that it, it is the original, but it's now the original glorified, even made that much better. That's what the gospel hope is. We are restored in Christ to what it truly means to be human, but more than that, in the end, we are glorified in Christ because of the coming resurrection. And when that happens, our greatest enemy is destroyed. And that's how Paul ends this section. Look at verses 54 through 57. When the perishable has been clothed with imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's referencing some Old Testament passage to show that the a fulfillment of what God has always intended to happen has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection. He's talking about how sin is punished by death. We all die and we're pulled towards sin because, or we're pulled towards death rather because of sin. And the law reveals that this is completely just. We are sinners that, are, are, that deserve death because we have rebelled against our Lord. We are to call to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves, and we don't do that. Rather than, than following those life-giving paths, we turn towards the, the path of sin and darkness and death. And that's our experience right now. That's why facing a health crisis is so, so fearful so shot through with anxiety, and not just that. It's why the frustrations of this world seem to keep on mounting because of maybe personal sin in our own life or broken relationships or injustices that we see in this world. It seems time and time again we're getting pulled towards death, and it stings, and it stinks, and nobody likes it. It's discouraging, and it's awful. But because of the resurrection, the sting of death is no longer there. Do you see how he's turning these passages into almost like mocking death? That's something that's sometimes hard to think about doing, mocking death, because death is just one of those things you're trying to avoid, and rightfully so, because we're not made to die. We're made to live forever in Christ. But now because of Christ and his death and resurrection, we can, we can face even death and say, where's your victory? What are you going to do, death? Where's your stink, big guy? What are you going to do to me? Jesus raised from the dead. You got nothing. You're just a little punk in the gospel. Could you imagine saying that to death? Well, that's the hope that the gospel gives you. That's, and it's not just death, but everything that, that, that is under the category of that, every sin, every just, injustice, every, every brokenness in your life and in the world that's being pulled towards death will have no power in that day because of the resurrection 
of the dead. And that's why he says, thanks be to God, because he gives us the victory over all that through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he sums it up and gives us this charge. So because this is true, because the resurrection is going to happen, because this is the hope that you have in the gospel, here and now, no matter what you are faced because of the power of death, this is what you need to do, saints, in, in light of this glorious future that you have. He says, verse 58, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. He says, stand firm because of the resurrection. Don't abandon this hope. Don't abandon this faith. Don't move one inch away from the gospel because this is a, an objective truth, a glorious reality. Jesus Christ is raised from the dead and it's going to happen to you and the power that raised Jesus from the dead is going to make all things new. And that's the mission that we are caught up in right now. Our mission is to join Jesus Christ and the power of God and the glorious mission of the Holy Spirit as we join him in making all things new, joining him in the renewal of our city and world because that is what God is up to and that's where history is going and you don't move one inch off of that gospel. It is worth giving your life to and if you give your life to it, you're not doing so in vain but you will get caught up in a resurrection and a life, an everlasting life that is so glorious that it's incomparable to anything else in this life. Is that worth giving your life to, brothers and sisters in Christ? Say amen if that's worth giving your life to. Amen. Amen. Well, let's move as we do each and every week to a time of celebrating this gospel at this table. Music.